All right. Well, it's great to be here and worship with you today. Again, as I said, I think I said before, I'm Tony Arnold. I'm your online campus pastor. And today we are going to be closing out our sermon series. This is a small little three-week series called Dear Christ Church. It's a study of the book of First Peter. In fact, uh, you know, I had a lot of fun uh, digging into this book a little bit. You know, this is a book that we often overlook towards the end of our uh, New Testament. And I found, as I was digging through it, that there's a lot in there that's relevant to, our, uh, to where we are, both in our church and in our society, even though it was written to first century churches in what is now modern-day Turkey, it still has a relevant word to say to us today. So, just a quick recap. On week one, we talked about how we need to have a balanced perspective. We talked about the fact that we need to remember that the resurrection, uh, that there would be no resurrection without the cross, and that the cross didn't end with the grave. And it, that is important to remember because it teaches us that, that this idea of our living hope in Jesus Christ is solid ground in a shaky world, that we can stand firm on our salvation in a world where the, the edges seem to be pulling out, where the ground seems to be shaking under our feet. And then last week, Pastor Ryan taught us about holy living. And now, holy living is the direct result of what happens when we embrace our living hope in Jesus Christ. And holy living is essentially what happens when we live out the gospel life, when we say to God, I'm going to live like Jesus Christ in my life. It's when we, uh, when we begin to live our lives as an outpouring of God's grace-filled love. And if last week was more of an overview about what holy living is all about, today is we get more into the specifics. Because the, the parts of the letter of 1 Peter we're examining today, Peter talks about how the first century church can relate to the world around it in a God-honoring way. And so that's what we're going to dig a little bit deeper into this morning. Now, the way that we, we live in a God-honoring way is known by many different names uh, in our faith, but one of those ways it's known as is mutual submission, mutual submission. But before we get into what that is, I just thought it would be helpful to review the purpose for why Peter wrote and also talk about some of the major themes that he wrote on. Now, before every section of, major section of Scripture this morning, we're going to say the words, Dear Christ Church, together, because that reminds us that Peter wasn't just writing to the first century church of his day, but the Holy Spirit was in Peter. The Holy Spirit we just sang about was working through Peter to write to us here in the 21st century. And so I want us to remember that. So on three, let's say it together. One, two, three. Dear Christ Church, my purpose in writing is to encourage you and assure you that what you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in this grace. Now, Peter was writing the early church in a time of intense persecution. It was a time that at any given moment, a disciple of Jesus could be dragged out of their home and executed. They could be sent to the arena to face the lions or burned at the stake or even crucified as well. You know, these people lived in constant suspense for their lives, not knowing uh, when the next wave of persecution was going to start 
up, not knowing if they were going to survive into the next week or even the next day. And so one of the main themes Peter brings up is that suffering, conflict, and persecution are daily realities in our world. It's just something that we have to live with. And yet, Peter also teaches that our living hope in Jesus Christ gives us joy in our suffering, delivers us from danger, and enables us to rely completely on God when the, when the bottom drops out. And so then we become witnesses of Jesus' resurrection, of Jesus' love in his life by holy living and by mutually submitting to one another by the love of God and the love of neighbor. Now, what does mutual submission even mean? I think one of the things we have to do to start to define that is to, is to understand what submission is. And so I, I did a little bit of searching, and I found two definitions that stood out to me about submission. And here's what the first one says. Yielding to a superior force or to the will or authority of another. Now, I don't know about you, but my natural human instinct is to grow uncomfortable and to shy away at the thought of giving myself over completely to somebody else's will and authority. You know, from early on, we're taught uh, about uh, the importance of choice and individuality. According to our society, the, the very worst thing that can happen to us is for us to become helplessly dependent on somebody else. But check out the second definition that I found as well. It, it reads, to quit or to give in due to pain or overwhelming pressure. Now, each of us knows what pain and overwhelming pressure feels like. This definition makes me feel probably even more uncomfortable than the first one. Now, all, uh, submission, if you think about it, submission is similar to the word surrender. And we both look at those in a negative light. To, to submit or to surrender, in a sense, is to show weakness or, or is to experience defeat. Uh, in, a, in a sense, if we submit or surrender, we begin to wonder, is there something wrong with me? Are we feel like we're doomed to always be second fiddle to better players? What if I were to tell you that's not quite right? What if I were to tell you that in my own experience, I discovered that submission can have a positive meaning? And so before I knew God, I was the center of my own universe. And everything that I did was done to get ahead and to preserve my own comfort. But ultimately, it was empty. I felt miserable. Nothing satisfied me. And the more that I, I tried to do to satisfy this feeling, the less I seemed to have. And what happened was, was that I, I became miserable, and I had this feeling that I was missing something essential in life. I was missing what life was truly about. And so when I started coming to the church around age 27, I began to understand what that was. And it's funny because back then, I thought of religious people that they were maybe kind of weak and needed a crutch in order to get through life. But then something started to change in me. I began to, I remembered how much I longed to give over control of my life to God's higher authority. I felt this pain and this overwhelming pressure, and it wasn't because God was punishing me and trying to force me to choose him. It was because I was holding back from God's love. And when I gave into that overwhelming pressure, I submitted to the will of God for my life. And do you know what I felt in that moment? It wasn't defeat, 
It wasn't weakness. It was overwhelming, indescribable relief. I was relieved that I had given over control of my life to God because I was free at last to be who God created me to be, to hold up the broken pieces of my heart, to see God mend those pieces and reveal to me how the brokenness and, and all those things that I went through in my life can feed into somebody else's life and do good to them, ways that we can serve one another. And so I was no longer my own God. I no longer tried to control things that I couldn't ultimately control. And that's when I learned that submission can be a positive thing in our lives when we look at it through the lens of faith. And so Peter, in this section of the letter we're going to look at today, actually uh, demonstrates that he knows all about the benefits of this idea of submitting to God's will. And we can find a little bit of his thoughts in chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. So let's say, Dear Christ Church, together. One, two, three. Dear Christ Church, your real home is not here on earth. You are strangers here. I ask you to keep away from all the sinful desires of the flesh. These things fight to get hold of your soul. When you are around people who do not know God, be careful how you act. Even if they talk against you as wrongdoers, in the end, they will give thanks to God for your good works when Christ comes again. There are a couple of things we need to remember here. The first of these is that the earliest followers of Jesus saw themselves as exiles in the world. They saw the world as something that was passing away, not something that we ought to cling to. They were in the world, but didn't consider themselves as being of the world. They were citizens of a heavenly country, and their loyalty went beyond wherever they happened to be. The other thing we need to remember is how delicate their situation was in the early church. You see, there were rumors that what the gospel taught actually undermines the social order. And so many people thought that the Roman Empire needs to wipe this, this new religious group out before it can grow, before it can gain influence, because it's undermining the way in which they lived their lives. But Peter knew the power of the gospel is in its ability to change hearts, and it's a subtle work, not something that we can force. And it's not by human effort, but it's all God's work done in us and through us. He understood that the church most often goes astray when we try to do things the way of this world rather than by the way of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so Peter urged the church of his day to live a life worthy of praise that would reveal all of those things that people were saying about them to be nothing more than lies. He taught that though this world tries to overcome us with evil, it is the promise of the children of God that we will overcome the evil of this world with good. We are called to overcome evil with good. In fact, one of the most important things that we learned this morning is that mutual submission allows love to thrive in difficult times. It allows love to thrive. And for the first century, 21st century church, the stakes are just as high. Not because we're in danger like the first century church of being dragged out of our homes and being persecuted for what we believe, but the stakes are high because Christ 
uh, and the gospel are being misrepresented in our society. You see, people are turning away from God and the good news because they don't necessarily see the goodness of God reflected in the life of Jesus' followers. And so mutual submission in 1 Peter has two dimensions. And the first one, and probably the most obvious, is this. Submitting to one, to each other in love. Submitting in love to each other. It means that we serve one another, loving the believers around us as we love ourselves. When, what makes it mutual is sometimes we're giving and sometimes we're receiving. You can think of it as voluntary selflessness. It's not the submission of fear, but the submission of perfect love. In fact, Jesus says it himself in one of the Gospels that they will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. And the second dimension uh, that we're going to talk about this morning is that mutual submission is agreeing to a way of life rooted in peacemaking. Mutual submission is rooted in a way of life that's defined by peacemaking. Now, I want you to know that when we're talking about peace, we're not talking about the mere outward uh, absence of conflict. True peace is internal. As disciples of Christ, the one who reconciled our stubborn and sinful hearts to God's love, we are called to go and to do likewise. We're called to go and to do likewise in this world because the whole of God's will for this world is that this world be reconciled and restored, that this world, that every stubborn heart, that every estranged heart would come back to their home, which is only found in the presence of God. And we get to be agents of God's loving grace in this world. So, in this part of the letter, Peter gets practical. He talks about several different kinds of relationships that we find in society. So there's the relationship between church and government, the relationship between slaves and masters, between husbands and wives, between leaders and followers. And he describes how the church should submit to one another in love and live a way of life that is rooted and defined by making peace. And so the first of these relationships we're going to look at today is the relationship between the church and the government, in this case being the Roman Empire of Peter's day. So let's see what he wrote. For the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution, whether of the emperor as supreme or of governors, as sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing right, you should silence the ignorance of the foolish." As servants of God, live as free people, yet do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. Honor everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, as we read each of these sections, you may notice that you have a bit of a, a knee-jerk reaction or maybe some kind of objection to what you've just heard. And I just want to encourage you and, and affirm you here because I think that I think that, that is uh, pretty common for us because it's perfectly normal as we struggle to translate the social reality of the first century to our own unique time and place. It takes some thought. It's, it's worth digging into with some depth. And so perhaps your first objection goes like this. Governments sometimes stand opposed to God's will. And aren't we called as God's people to oppose injustice in this world? 
Well, I think the short answer is yes, of course we are. And we see it exercised by the prophets time and time again in the Old Testament as they, as they confront the kings of their day with the injustices of their society. But here's the thing we have to remember, that the prophets of the Old Testament were talking to the kings of Israel, to a government that was theocratic in nature, that was God-centered. There was a space that allowed them to do those things. We have to remember Peter's context. We have to remember that the church was in a very delicate situation. Peter wasn't writing to believers who lived within a representative democracy like our own. Peter was writing to believers who, who lived in a brutal and oppressive empire, to people who had no political power or standing whatsoever. And so the very best that they could do was to be the very best citizens they could possibly be, and in doing so, silence the lies and rumors of those who were talking against the church. And what they did was they fought injustice by the internal work of changing people's hearts rather than by the outward show of political force. Here's what we learn about mutual submission in this passage. According to Peter, Mutual submission recognizes that God alone is our highest authority. God alone. Now, we may be asked to submit to human institutions of all kinds, but according to the scripture, only for God's sake. Why? Well, it's because God is a God of order. We see it in the Bible from beginning to end. God is a God of order. And even though human governments are prone to corruption, and are imperfect by nature, they do establish a sense of order. And again, the God that we meet in Scripture is a God of order. Now, that said, did you notice how Peter said that every human authority is sent by God to do what? To punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. That's an important detail. It's very important. Because living in this world, we know that isn't always the case, that sometimes those who do wrong are the ones who are praised, and those who do right are the ones who are punished. And so therefore, Peter teaches us that mutual submission doesn't forbid civil disobedience when the gospel is at stake. And that last part's important. It doesn't, it doesn't forbid civil disobedience when the gospel is at stake. Remember before how we said that mutual submission is rooted in a way of life that's characterized by peace. When I think of this, I think naturally of the civil rights movement and how Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his life for that cause. You know, this was a movement that believed that violence was not the means to lasting change. The people engaged in civil disobedience with a strong commitment to peace, believing in God's promises that those things would come true. And so when things are out of whack in our world, we're called to respond with peaceful action. Peter also teaches us here that mutual submission puts our relationships in their proper place. It puts our relationships in their proper place. And this is, this is another way of saying that God alone is our highest authority. In verse 17, Peter says, honor everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, we honor those around us not because they've necessarily earned it or deserve it, but because they, like us, are created in the image of God. We, 
We love the family of believers because they're our brothers and sisters in Christ and because they, together with us, are heirs of all of God's promises. And we fear God, fear meaning in this case reverence and awe, worship. We worship God because God is the only one who is worthy of our worship in this life. And when there's a conflict between obeying God and obeying people, Peter knew from experience, see, all you have to do is look at the book of Acts, Peter knew from experience that we need to choose the one that we fear over the ones that we honor. Now, let's move on to the relationship between slaves and masters. Here's what Peter says about this. Slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing good, doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. I think for most of us, the obvious objection we have when we read this passage is the fact that Peter seems to accept the institution of slavery. And aren't we as God's people called to set the captive free? Well, of course we are. That's what we're called to do. But think about Peter's context once again. One of the accusations that people were making about the early church is that all this talk of there is no slave or free in Christ Jesus was undermining the social order. I don't think it was a secret to Peter that God wanted to set the captives free, not just in a spiritual sense from the power of sin and death, but also in physical reality as well. But here's the thing. The church was still in its infancy. To incite a violent slave uprising would go against the church's impulse to be peacemakers in their community, and it would prove to the Roman Empire that Christianity was a dangerous cult that needed to be put down as soon as possible. Any lasting change Peter knew had to happen internally in the heart before it could manifest in the world externally. And the closest analog that we have uh, in our Western culture here in the United States to the slave and master relationship is probably the employees and employer uh, relationship, you know, and sometimes these are great and they go well, but sometimes we're treated rather inhumanely by the people who hold power over us. What Peter teaches us here is that mutual submission defines true freedom as our response to outward circumstances we often cannot control. It's all about our response. Because as resurrection people, we can respond to this world's faithlessness with faithfulness. We can respond to this world's hate with love. We can do these things because when we do them, it makes it possible for God to do the impossible, to begin to dismantle the unjust structures within our society and to change the hearts of people who once accepted something that to us nowadays seems so abhorrent, seems so wrong. And so any lasting change would have to happen internally. Our inward freedom to do good will always manifest an outward blessing. Also, according to Peter, Mutual submission makes us conscious of God and more like Jesus in character. 
When we, are, when we as the church commit to be peacemakers, even in situations where we're being treated poorly, it makes us conscious of God and more like Jesus in character. It, it makes us think of what Jesus went through for us. Because Jesus, too, was accused of things that wasn't true. He was beaten for doing good. He was nailed to a cross. He was crucified, dead, and buried. We find a strange comfort when we get to share in the sufferings of Christ. And this makes us more like him in character. Because we no longer want to be served, we want to serve. And we find ultimate meaning in our lives by doing those things and by showing others what true life and true faith is all about. So next, Peter moves on to the relationship between wives and husbands. And I've, I've got to warn you for this one. This one's a bit of a doozy. It really is, because at the end of the passage, there's a word that's going to offend many of us. Um, but I'm, I'm just going to ask you to give me a little grace, because when we get there, uh, when we get to the end of that passage, I'm going to explain to you what I learned and what I believe Peter is really saying there. And so uh, what I want to do is let's go ahead and read that, um, or I'll read it to you, and then just give me some grace, and we'll explain exactly what it's saying. So it says... Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives, here it comes, and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Whew. Well, I think the most obvious objection we may have to this passage is the fact that Peter calls wives the weaker partner. And doesn't scripture teach us that there is no male and female in Christ Jesus? And the answer, of course, is, of course it does. So I was relieved when I did a little bit more digging into Peter's use of this word. And Peter didn't use the word weak uh, necessarily to mean that women are mentally, morally, spiritually, emotionally, or even physically weaker than men. In fact, I can tell you from experience that I've had my butt kicked by quite a few women in terms of arm wrestling. My wife's probably one of them. So, and I'm not too proud to admit it either. So it doesn't say that. You know, but Peter was acknowledging, and here's where it gets real. Peter was acknowledging that women had a more vulnerable place in society, that according to the way that one of my commentaries put it was that they were destitute of power among men. And that was the reality of that first century situation. But did you know that women made the spread of the gospel possible? It was women who funded the missionary endeavors of the Apostle Paul. It was them who, who gave him the money that was needed in order to, to go out and to do what he did. Women led house churches. Women taught newer believers to stand firm in their faith, even in a time of great trial and persecution. You know, to this world, Jesus himself appeared weak and vulnerable, but he carried the power of eternal life within him. And the women in Jesus' story, had some of the most profound encounters with him. 
And I think what Peter's doing here is he is using the word weak to acknowledge this and draw a direct parallel between Jesus and the wives to whom he's writing. He's saying that they're anything but weak, that in fact, they have great power to change the people around them. That is exactly what he's saying, that their example is indispensable. So according to Peter, mutual submission breaks down barriers with action. It breaks down barriers with action. You know, Peter doesn't tell the women that he's writing to lead a good Bible study or to preach a sermon. He's telling them to live out the gospel life, to win over their husbands and others by doing God's will, by doing what pleases God in this world. He's telling them if they practice what it is that they see in Scripture, what they see in the life of Jesus, they can change the people around them. And this was revolutionary. I want you to understand that this was revolutionary because women in those days were expected to follow the religion of their husbands unquestioningly. And here Peter was writing to these women and addressing them as independent moral agents. Peter also teaches us that mutual submission enables us to have a robust prayer life, a robust prayer life. We know from our own history as Christ Church that what happens when we pray. We were once a church of 30 to 40 individuals in the 1990s, and here we are today, and it was all because of the way of prayer. You know, from our own history, we've learned that when we submit to each other in love and agree to a way of life rooted in peace, we become more dedicated to prayer. And more prayer equals a closer walk with God and a great, greater understanding, a deeper sense that we're living in accordance with God's will. Peter also teaches us that mutual submission sets the foundation for an even playing field, for an even playing field. You know, I'm not saying that we've arrived here in the 21st century. I think there's still some challenges ahead of us. But we've come a long way since the first century church in realizing the promise that there is no male and female in Christ Jesus. There's still work to be done, and yet I don't think God has been idle all of these centuries. You know, it's my distinct pleasure to work alongside uh, clergy colleagues who are female in our United Methodist system. And it's also my pleasure to work with uh, ministry leaders here at Christ Church. Many of the ministries which are led by talented, called women here at Christ Church. And that is something that I think makes us stronger as a church community. Now, the last section that Peter dealt with was the relationship between, believe, uh, b- between leaders and followers. Or another way of looking at it is the relationship between the mature and those who are maybe a little bit younger. And here's what he says. To the elders among you, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples of the flock. Now, this is probably the tamest passage that we've read this morning, but there may be a common objection that we find in it, and that objection is simply this. I'm not the leader of a church, so I don't see how this scripture is relevant to my life. Well, you may not be the leader of a church, but you may be somebody's boss, or you may be somebody who has expertise in a skill or some life experience. Each of us is gifted 
to pass something on to others. In fact, according to Peter, mutual submission is maturity that shares and multiplies. Maturity that shares and multiplies. You have something to offer those around you. Submitting to each other in love means sharing your gifts to encourage and bless. So as we begin to wrap this, this series up, this message up today, we need to ask the most important question. How can we practice mutual submission in our everyday lives? What does that look like? Well, I think Peter gives us the answer towards the end of his letter, and we can find it in chapter 5. Here's what it says. If you bow low in God's awesome presence, he will eventually exalt you as you leave the timing in his hands. Pour out all your worries and stress upon him and leave them there, for he always tenderly cares for you. Be well balanced and always alert, because your enemy the devil roams around incessantly like a roaring lion looking for its prey to devour. Take a decisive stand against him and resist his every attack with strong, vigorous faith. For you know that your believing brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing the same kinds of troubles you endure. And then, after your brief suffering, the God of all loving grace, who has called you to share in his eternal glory in Christ, will personally and powerfully restore you and make you stronger than ever. Yes, he will set you firmly in place and build you up. And he has all the power needed to do this forever. Amen. Now, according to Peter, we need to seek peace. We need to seek peace. Submitting to one another in love and agreeing to a way of life rooted in peacemaking humbles us and brings about peace in our hearts. Bowing down low, humility is about recognizing who God is and recognizing who we really are. To love deeply and submit means knowing one another profoundly. That means spending time with one another. And for many of us, it starts in our homes and goes outward from there, from our, our biological family to our, to our, uh, our church family, and, and on and on and on, it moves forward. When our hearts are at peace, we can be at peace with others, even in hard times, even when the people around us don't deserve it. We love others to please God, and in recognition that the people around us are also children of God. We do it knowing that Scripture teaches us that none of God's promises will ever fail. And we see the decisive moment in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter also teaches us in this passage that we need to be well alert, uh, sorry, well balanced and alert. We need to be well balanced and alert because our most dangerous enemy isn't the people around us. It isn't Satan. It isn't the evil powers of this world. The most dangerous enemy is within us. It's our tendency, our temptation to be complacent in our faith. You see, when we move from trial and conflict to relative peace, we become comfortable and we let our guard down. Being well-balanced and alert is how we stay strong in the face of that temptation. It's how we stay with our guard up, with our eyes wide open to the dangers around us. And yet, our hearts do not fear when our eyes are wide open. Being well-balanced means holding onto our living hope in this broken world, and being alert keeps us from falling prey to the anxieties of our future and the regrets of our past. Finally, Peter teaches us 
that we need to take a decisive stand. We need to take a decisive stand because the most powerful force in this world is resurrection because Jesus overcame the power of death. Jesus overcame it all. And so we too are meant to overcome the evil of this world together. We do it by way of mutual submission, of loving one another and agreeing to a way of life rooted in peacemaking. So it starts with you and it starts with me. It's an invitation for all of us to consider the ways that we together can love one another authentically, the ways in which we can submit to one another selflessly so that this world that is hurting, this world that doesn't believe it has solid ground to, to, to stand on, can stand on the living hope of Jesus Christ and become part of the family of faith. So if we do this together, we'll see this weary and hurting world changing, transforming, renewing, one heart, one life at a time. And that, my brothers and sisters, is good news. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your love and grace in Jesus Christ, which never fails and never ends. You are our solid hope upon which we stand. Thank you, God, for who you are and for what you've done for us. I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to one another, that we would submit mutually to one another, that we would love each other and be committed to peacemaking in this world. Because we know that real change starts internally. Real change starts in the heart, not by outward, not by outward force, not by anything, but by your spirit. So use us, Lord, as vessels of your grace in this world. Help us to show others that life truly can be found in you and that this life is not a counterfeit life. This is the true life, the abundant life, the eternal life that Jesus talked about, that Jesus came to give each and every one of us. So protect us, Lord, from that danger that we face. Help us to be well-balanced and alert, to seek peace. Thank you, Lord, for all of the ways that you continue to work in our hearts and in our lives. We pray these things with gratitude and great expectation in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen.